Yes, our naked intros are almost done. We will be shortly recording the uh, all the cool new intros with Corey and setting ourselves up for another good solid year of fun intros. Um, Mark, you just forced me to witness the end of civilization as we know it. Well, I guess, I, although we do want to talk about uh, uh, your very special sneak peek at 4K yes. uh, Blu-rays. But, yes, yes uh, I mentioned last week that I bought a PlayStation 4 and that you can watch people as they stream you can watch them for hours and hours if you like, and they're from all over the world, and they all have no probably no jobs because they're all just fat and lazy and stupid, and it's and unbelievable. Around, like all over the world, people sitting around on couches in uh, small, completely disheveled apartments with the camera pointed at them doing nothing in particular, and they are interfacing with people who apparently are amusing themselves by just watching these people do nothing. I don't really understand it. it we, we have literally, literally every part of the globe now has hundreds of satellite and cable channels, networks that spend millions of dollars on sophisticated programming to capture your attention, to hold it week after week. They pay writers and directors and producers, and they have actors who get paid big bucks. They build sets. They make series and then somebody actually would rather sit there and watch somebody uh, just sit on their couch and, and eat Cheetos. I don't understand this. And that's all they do. Literally, we, we would rather watch some truck-sized woman, right, with a blanket over her, her body, talking a thick British accent with a, with a beer in her hand, and her dog, you know, gnawing at her, talk, uh, talk about, uh, uh, how dare you make fun of my dog? I don't get it. It's the end of civilization. The best. I just don't understand. Wait, why don't you it's tell everybody the excitement... The thrill yeah. of 4K. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, we, are, we are still building our 4K system uh, because, obviously, it's, there's only one 4K Blu-ray player out there. There's only a handful of 4K receivers. So it is, uh, ours is a work in progress, at least mine is. Uh, Mark, you're not even planning on 4K yet, are you? No. I mean, when, yeah. when there's a preponderance of uh, players and Blu-rays available. Yes. We don't want Ender's Game on 4K. I'm sorry. So, in any case, but we do have access to a system, which uh, which I am using uh, for the time being to uh, review whatever we are sent in 4K until we build our own superior system. But this is so that everything I am seeing is on an early adopter system, by the way. It is it is on an, a, uh, an, an LG 4K TV with the uh, Samsung, which is the only... 4K player available right now. There's only one. Samsung's the only one. So it is entirely possible that the Samsung, being the earliest machine, is not reproducing the 4K image as amazingly as future players will. So we have to wait until the end of the year when we will uh, see what the Oppo can do. Oppo, I've gone back and forth. You love the Oppo. I love the Oppo. And I've gone back and forth with people at Oppo, and they're not, they don't rush anything. That's what I love about them. You know? Jason over at Oppo has always been really, really great, and anytime I ask him a question, he just you know, he, he takes a great deal of time to explain it. And uh, they're very, very accommodating in terms of explaining technical things and what they do to sort of develop the next line. Anyway, so here's what we were sent as far as 4K. Uh, there's a lot of 4K stuff that's come out in the last few weeks. Uh, only a handful of it was sent to us. Now, mind you, 20th and Lionsgate jumped right on top of this immediately. 
And uh, 20th sent us four titles. Lionsgate sent us three. The, uh, my feelings on it all is very mixed, to be honest. Um, I do not get the sense that... And it's sort of... You remember like when DVD first came out? It felt like everybody was just taking their one-inch masters, uh, their one-inch... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Their one-inch videotape masters, and they were just kind of throwing that onto a DVD. And then what you were looking at still looked like videotape in some cases. Sure, there was no professional cleanup involved. No cleanup. And then the earliest Blu-rays just looked like somebody just kind of, you know transferred a dvd to a blu-ray and it didn't you know it took some time before people actually honored the format before they actually sort of understood the format they understood uh like a lot of those early blu-rays you remember how just pasty people looked it just took it just did horrible things to the complexions of people i mean early blu-rays were not a pretty thing they they scared a lot of people away from the format they almost preferred to go back to dvd which softened things and was kinder to the picture. So I feel like we're in a similar zone with some of these early uh, 4K Blu-rays, which is that they... It does not look to me as though even... It does not look to me as though somebody has given careful enough attention as to how a film that that lives on 4K, obviously, for 4K projection in a theater, how that reproduces slightly differently on a 4K television. Um... I do get the sense that uh, the they, the colors in many cases are a little bit oversaturated, which you can adjust for with the TV modes. But still, it you can just tell in the transfer the colors are a little oversaturated. They're they're designed to be thrown at a distance from a projector, and they they haven't adequately compensated a lot of the colors. So that being said, I I'm not going to not recommend these because yes, the the image is much more clear and the sound is just through the roof it's not to be believed if you have a great system if you've really invested in in audio and if you have a large enough television if you have like at least a 50 inch i would say a 55 inch at the very least for 4k to be significant go for it but um exodus gods and kings let's start with exodus gods and kings so exodus gods and kings uh not a great movie Although, oh my gosh, do you see the new the, the, the Ben Hur trailer? As long as we're on the subject of films, we, it should we never may, be. We talked about this on the DigiGods Facebook page. It, it's it's, oh it's a disaster. It looks horrendous. It's just a bunch of CGI nothing. Oh, it's all, but, but even the stuff that's not CGI, it looks it's all handheld. The casting is bad. Like, I, I knew that. That, 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 that guy who plays uh, uh, Ben Hur, he, he looks like a nobody. Yeah, he was he's a some Houston. random he's guy. A Houston. He's a Houston. Whatever, some random yeah. guy. But it, it, it's terrible. It looks awful. Looks dreadful, and I knew that Timur Bekmambetov would make a bad movie. I mean, that was never in doubt, but I didn't think he'd make a movie that bad. I this wow this there's there's been it's this just dreadful. There's been this uh, sword and sandal rehash that's uh, bl- blipped up a little bit. It's not working. First no. of all, that that ABC show Gods and Prophets two episodes disaster done. gone two episodes done. In fairness, um, did you watch any of that show? No, I, I saw the first episode. What's wrong meh, with you? Why? Well, I figured why not? You know, let's see how let's see how it is. Meh. Like, it, it it was something clearly rushed to television. Too many cooks in the kitchen. You could tell there's no single vision to it. And they're sort of trying to hit all of these faith-based demographics, but also try to hit the uh, the uh, the Game of Thrones demo, right? You could tell there was sort of like a checklist of things that this show had to meet. There's no sort of artistic vision. That being said, probably could have had a, a future, but they stuck it in that terrible, like, Tuesday night, 10 p.m. time slot that just kills every show. I mean, ABC has been trying to get that time slot to work for the longest time, and they just can't. Like, no one wants to watch ABC on that on that slot. Anyway, so uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, the whole Moses and uh, Pharaoh deal. 
Um, director by Ridley Scott before he redeemed himself with The Martian, which we'll also talk about. Exodus, Gods and Kings, not great. A lot of CGI, not really well written. Uh, bottom line, in uh, why would you release this in 4K? Well, because it's got loads of CGI, and you know what? It's even more obviously CGI in 4K. Cannot really heavily recommend this. Uh, that being said, you know, it's got... Uh, it's got your regular uh, Blu-ray on it as well, so you'll always have that. And, uh, you know, commentary and all the usual stuff. So not not great. Uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, probably the best one of all of these. I like this movie. It's a good movie. <coughs> it's not just because it's a good movie. It's good 4K. Uh, partly, I think, because the movie itself looked a little bit desaturated in theaters. I don't know if you were aware of that. Well, did, it's, did that it's, strike you? it's basically a, it's a, it has a certain periodness to it. It has a certain periodness to it, but that as a result, when it oversaturates a little bit in 4K for for in this format, it winds up still looking really, really good, really decent. So the special effects benefit, the audio uh, is is fantastic. So I would say if, if you're going to watch a film that really, really shows off 4K, uh, X Men: Days of Future Past is the one. And man, am I looking forward to Apocalypse! Right, right. I am. Of course you are. I mean, I like the X-Men films. It's, uh, they're good. But you realize who's playing Apocalypse. Uh, Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Isaac, right? Come on, man. He He's rules. The, he does rule. He so rules. I just love that guy. Everything he does. Uh, so anyway, yeah, X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, good movie. Very good uh, 4K Ultra HD. Again, Ridley Scott with The Martian. He's the, he's the first director to have two films on, uh, on 4K Blu-ray. Isn't that amazing? One week. One week. No, Boom. Not there really. Uh, the Martian looks good. Looks good. Uh, you know, it looks about as good as can be expected. Did it look better than a regular Blu-ray to me? I'm not so sure. Uh, it didn't. It certainly didn't have a lot of the flaws that I thought that uh, Gods and Kings had. Um, my second favorite of all of these is Kingsman: Secret Service. Oh, I love this movie. Uh, I love this movie. I'm so glad they're doing another one. Yes, I'm so glad. And I'm, but I'm just so sad that the casting is going to be a little different. Which we, you know, if you haven't seen this, I'm not going to say anything else. But great movie, absolutely great movie. Uh, Matthew Vaughn just kills it in this. Absolutely great. Uh, he could have been the other, the second director to get two films in 4K if they had released the previous X Men film, which he directed. Holy. Christ. That would have been great. That but anyway, been amazing. Uh, this one, you know, all the same usual uh, goodies and fun stuff uh, that you got. You know, the Blu-ray. The Blu-rays are all included in these. You get a Blu-ray. It's not like you have to, you know, worry about losing a format. You get this. You also get the Blu-ray. Uh, so this is the, uh, you know, you, and you also get um, ultraviolet, by the way, too. So that's that's part of this as well. So. Um, you know, yeah, Kingsman looks good, mainly because of the action stuff, which is so ferocious and fast and tenacious. Really, really easy to watch on a big screen. Uh, 4K, beautiful. All that fast-moving action fight stuff comes off beautifully. There's no, there's no blurring, no tracking error, nothing. It is just, boom, right there. But you don't ever feel like it's, it's, it's hitting you in the face. It's punching you in the face with the, uh, with the, uh, the, the 60 hertz stuff because you... you you clock it right back down to uh, you know twenty four hertz, thirty hertz, whatever, to, to get that twenty four frame a second look, get that film look, and the action is still crisp. So it's beautiful. That was really really appreciated. Now on to the Lionsgate titles, which includes Ender's Game and two other movies, which will remain nameless until I laugh at them. Uh, Ender's Game, good film. I don't know why this was chosen for for four K. Uh, I don't know why any of these were chosen for four K. Uh, well, but Ender's Game is. 
kind of the one I like. Okay, fair enough, fairly recent, but I don't really. I mean, was this is this like a visual feast to such a degree that? Oh, it's, it's the best. It's, it has Harrison Ford. Yeah, well, it is, anyway. it is best uh, Beso Profundo, Harrison Ford. Based on the uh, the novel, which took forever to get made. They were trying to make this thing just for, honestly forever. Um, Gavin Hood, you know, from South Africa, who's won an Oscar, uh, keeps trying to get that Hollywood career going, and he couldn't get it going with uh, with Wolverine, so he's kind of trying to get it going with this. I, this doesn't hurt him. Um, I guess the 4K release probably gives him a little bit of a kind of bragging rights. But um, how does the, how does the 4K look? Fine. It's fine. Doesn't I don't think it looks better than the Blu-ray. Um, it certainly looks comparable, uh, given all of the other errors. Here's what looks horrible. The Last Witch Hunter. First of all, I don't even know why this movie was made. Uh, it's a terrible film. And uh, they put absolutely no attention into the, uh, into the 4K. Uh, the, the effects are just grotesque. They're even more grotesque in 4K. And uh, the film is even glaringly worse of a movie when you see it in 4K. It's kind of an embarrassment. And then lastly... The Expendables 3? What? Well, I think the reason why they did that is, the, is because they know that you have to be of a certain age to be able yeah. to afford the monitor and yeah. the player and the cords and the whatever. And those people tend to be of a certain age that might appreciate Stallone then, and all then, those old people. Then do The Expendables or The Expendables 2, which was really a lot of fun. Expendables 3 is a terrible movie. If you have a nostalgic attachment to this franchise, three is the one that killed it. Two is the one that sort of cemented it. I mean, come on, seriously. Well, maybe, maybe I'm not defending it, but maybe yeah. Expendables three has more to show off the system. I suppose. Because anyway. you know what? Because when Expendables came out, I mean, you know, with each successive sequel, they probably got a little bump in the budget. Yeah, they can use that for more CGI, more polished production. And that might show off better so, on 4K. So the one, the one thing that I can say about Expendables 3 is the, the, the Dolby Atmos audio is really, really good. The movie's terrible. The audio is really, really good. There's a, there, the, the mix on this film is actually surprisingly good. And uh, it works very nicely in a home environment with the you know multiple with 5.1, 7.1, 9.2, whatever your speaker setup is. It's going it, to really make it hum. It almost makes it irrelevant how many speakers you have at a certain point. As long as you have some kind of a surround system and it's cranked up loud enough, you're going to get the benefit of this. Um, the, uh, the now, mind you, the extras. I should I should point out the extras in all of these. Almost all of these are on the Blu-ray only. They're not on the 4K disc because there's no room left on the 4K disc to put a whole bunch of extras. And that seems to be the way that things are going to be going forward. So if you want to watch the extras, you're not going to be watching the extras in 4K. You're going to be watching the extras in Blu-ray. Well, that's fine. Which is fine. Which should be perfectly fine. I don't. I don't. You know, the the movie in 4K is really the the, the thing. So um, anyway, so bottom line, the the format is uh, it's like the early days of uh, DVD and Blu-ray. It's uh, it's very much subject to all kinds of variables and how much attention people have given to it, and the fact that they're really the mastering is new. So the people who are the monkeys who are running the machines, who are you know the hamsters that are running on the treadmills, they aren't they aren't yet, clearly yet they haven't sort of mastered the whole process, and they're still getting up to speed. So my guess is that a lot of these things. One reason that they're releasing movies that are probably not too great is that they're expecting to re-release them later based on sales, et cetera, et cetera. I would be willing to bet that of all of these, 
uh, X-Men Days of Future Past and The Martian will be re-released in some kind of a big flamboyant special edition, anniversary edition, uh, 4K down the line, and they will be redone. They will be remastered in a way that the current technology, the current mastering tools don't allow them to do. I would expect to see those two, maybe Kingsman, re-released somewhere down the line. So anybody who's buying them now should probably assume that they're going to have to double dip down the line. That's true. And then the thing with 4K, although I, I enjoy the fact that at least the studios have some faith left in packaged media. Yeah. Don't expect, you know, Weekend at Bernie's in 4K. No, Really, this, no. It, this is collector city for it's, the great films that really deserve to be Look on how 4K. much stuff is still on DVD. Most classic TV shows, you're not going to see Three's Company on, on Blu-ray anytime oh, soon. Three's Company. I know, you're not going to see Three's Company on He's Blu-ray. hers and his and hers, Three's <laughs> Company too. By the way, you know, I was reading, after, after the whole Jeffrey Tambor thing last week, there was a, there was a little thing that I found on the, uh, online, which is 16 little uh, trivia tidbits about Three's Company. One of which was that Jeffrey Tambor played three different characters on the show. But did you know the brunette at the beginning in the credit sequence, who uh, who Jack sees and then he falls over on his on his bike? That's Suzanne Somers wearing a wig. Uh, is I uh, really? Yeah, that's Suzanne Somers in a in a in a brunette wig. Now is that something we would know if we weren't like three years old when the show came out? No, you'd never have if, known. If we you'd, watched it now, would we say hey, that's if, so Suzanne Somers? If you had memorized her buttocks, like the the curvature of her buttocks. Oh, so you, you don't see her face? So you, you said she has a wig. Oh, so you, they show from behind. Show from behind. Okay. And then um, company. Yeah, now you're gonna look it up. And then oh, yeah. the, and during that same credit sequence, the um uh the little kid who runs over to Janet at the zoo. <laughs> That was not planned. That's uh, John Ritter's little boy. And he, he just ran away from his mom and ran into the frame. And she was never supposed to be approached by a little kid, but it just wound up being such a charming uh, impromptu moment that uh, you know they kept it in. And it's part of the show. Isn't that great? Not really. I love it. I love that. Oh, these anyway. guys. I'm, I'm, I'm watching on uh, yeah. YouTube and uh, because as a podcast, I know you guys love it when we watch stuff yeah. on YouTube. But uh, It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm watching so, this now. You you talk. I'm 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 gonna look at look for uh, Suzanne. You want Summers. me to talk? Okay. Well, yeah, fine. Then I'm just gonna run through a. Uh, I'll run through more classic movies. A uh, bunch of Olive titles. Olive. What a great what a great lineup they have this week. This is great stuff. Um, a, a fairly obscure film that Olive has thrown our way, uh, directed by David Gordon Green, is Undertow. David Gordon Green, of course, goes vacillates back and forth between things like. Uh, you know, Pineapple Express and George Washington. You know, one is great and one is horrible. Uh, or now, was was that season one? The open for season one because they have yes. a different. Like I'm looking at yeah. season three open. It's different. No, season one. Oh yeah, season one for sure. Anyway, David Gordon Green made this in 2004. Uh, this is one of his more serious films. One of his uh, kind of uh, Terrence Malick-ish films. And uh, really very nice, based on a uh, story by Lingard Jervy and uh, scripted by Joe Conway and David Gordon Green. And uh, really good performances here by uh, Josh Lucas in particular, Dermot Mulroney, Jamie, a young Jamie Bell. Um, really kind of a beautiful family saga with a, uh, you know, kind of a, a rural backdrop to it. Um, exactly the kind of thing that David Gordon Green does very, very well. That is on Blu-ray from Olive, and it's a wonderful pickup. Uh, My Summer Story, Charles Grodin, Mary Steenburgen. Another film that kind of fell between the, uh, the, the cracks. This is a, a Bob Clark movie from 1994, uh, which is ostensibly a sequel to A Christmas Story, even though none of the same actors are in it. But it is a sequel in the sense that it is based on the sequel novel 
uh, by Gene Shepard. And uh, it's not as charming as A Christmas Story, but it's certainly, if you like A Christmas Story, you'll find a lot to appreciate and relate to in it. So, And Charles Grodin is just always wonderful. Uh, you know, Chuck Norris. We're going to talk about a couple of other Chuck Norris movies. Actually, you know what, Mark? I'm going to set this aside. I'm going to set this aside so we can cover it in our Chuck Norris segment. I think you should. That's what I'm going to do because uh, even though this is Olive and the other two are uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, that we'll we'll cover that in the same same bit. So we're going to improvise. Bette Midler in Jinxed. This is when Bette Midler was trying to still desperately capitalize on her Academy Award nominated. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You mean this? Hang on. This we're going to go back to the Three's Company. Okay, hold so on. Yes. You mean this bit here? That, bit. The, that is Suzanne Summers. That's Suzanne Summers. Yep. So John Ritter is uh, riding his bike on the on the, uh, the bike path in Santa, in Santa Monica. Monica. Yep. Interesting. I, yes. that, that, you know what? I would not have known that. Isn't that funny? You might as well, might as well be her. Yep. Why you not? Know, why why hire an extra just for that shot? Exactly. Exactly. No, no, what was the other thing? Oh, it's a it's a zoo shot with uh, with Janet. I forget what season that was. That might have been the second season. No, but... no. Actually, I, I just saw it. So is it, was, it? it was a zoo. It was, they were at the zoo, and Don yeah. Knotts is in that shot. It's it's John Ritter's son. Oh, I, I know where it is. Hang yeah. on, it's it's coming. Yeah, we're so lame. Yeah, we're 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 the best. <laughs> so while you're doing that, let me just keep going. Uh, Bette Midler and Jinx. So she had been in the Rose, gotten an Oscar nomination for the Rose, and then was trying to sort of reinvent herself as a major actress, but something closer to her regular persona. And Jinxed is not quite that movie, but it is significant that it was directed by Don Siegel, one of his final films, 1982. The Don Siegel, of course, who made many great Clint Eastwood films, including Dirty Harry, and uh, one of the great directors of the 60s and 70s. And uh, it's a bit of a strange film. It's very much a, a vehicle for Bette Midler, uh, with Bette Midler basically playing Bette Midler. But uh, it's, a, you know what, it's one of those interesting 80s films, and it's nice to have it out. And it's a good-looking Blu-ray. Uh, my favorite this week. Oh my gosh, what a good transfer this is! The trip. Roger Corman's. Uh, <laughs> now what? You got, okay. I'm sorry for. I, I, I'm. I'm not going to make Wade stop the recording. Look how cheesy and seventies Richard Klein's reaction is. This is just the worst. His hair I, is I'm the sorry, best. folks. Folks, I, I have to do this. Yeah. Okay. Let, Let me see. It. Hang on. Uh, in fact, I'll, give, I'll just give you the audio just so it doesn't. Uh-huh. It seems like, okay. yeah. Watch Richard Klein. This is yeah. the season seven opening. <laughs> now, oh. is it this kid? Is it this kid that Don Knotts is about to talk? This kid here with the blonde? No, 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 no. Because there's another kid in the no. open. No, 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 no. I, th- I think this may be too late in the in the season. Well, it's it's, it's a kid was... who runs up to Janet. Oh, whoa, wait, wait. It might be. Yeah, that's that's after Suzanne Somers left the show. And that's Pris- that's Priscilla Barnes. Yes. This is the only thing she's ever done. Anyone cares about. That, that's what, the that's that's the one. Yes. One of these kids is, is uh, John Ritter's kid. Yeah, that's John okay. Ritter's little boy. It's exciting. Yep, just walked right up to her. Isn't that great? That little <laughs> boy. He just kid. walked right up. Oh, you mean like he wasn't supposed to? He wasn't supposed to. He ran oh, away that's from, really it's really. Yeah, he ran away from his mom. Oh, that's the it's the beauty of that moment, and they just kept it. Well, let me let me now. Does Joyce Dewitt have any sort? This is so boring for people. Does did Joyce Dewitt have any <laughs> reaction to this? Uh, it, it, sort of. Here it comes. No, she stayed totally in character. Because, you know, she would have looked at the kid and she said, would've... well, she would have, like, made some sort of, like... Yeah. There you go. So, anyway... <laughs> back to our show. Back to our show. Uh, Roger Corman, you know, directed all kinds of films, and some good films and some bad films, but they were always... 
he was always trying to stay on track with what the kids were, you know, what what was in the pop culture and his exploitation the stuff. The Trip is a cool movie, man. The Come Trip on, is Peter a cool Fonda, movie. Jack Nicholson, because Susan Strauss, Bruce Dern. Nothing else had sort of tackled the whole drug scene of the 60s. Everybody was kind of afraid of it. They didn't want to put it in a movie. They weren't sure what the censorship consequences might be. This is right on the cusp of the rating system opening up everything. So you're still under the Hayes Code, under the production code. It's 1967. You're getting the envelope pushed a little bit with things like in the heat of the night. You know, racial issues and a lot of social issues are making their way into movies. And Corman's like, let's just make a drug movie. Call it the trip. Jack Nicholson wrote this movie. That's right. Jack Nicholson wrote this movie. From deep experience, I'm sure. Uh, and yeah, it's got everybody in it who was part of that whole scene, those biker films and those teen films and those rebel films, Bruce Dern, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper. They're all in it. Uh, you know, Nicholson wrote it, but Dern and Hopper are, are basically the stars of it, um, along with Peter Fonda. And uh, this is pre-Easy uh, Rider. So this is, you know, you're sort of getting the Easy Rider clan. They're sort of getting their, uh, they're getting their vibe on, and which, of course, they did without Corman. But... Um, I think this is I think this is a really fun, funky throwback film. The garish colors, it is so of the era. It is it's just the all the drug stuff. It's really very cool. It's really it's not as cheesy as you would think it is. It really it kind of represents an era and a mindset and a sensibility. And the transfer is great. They did a great job. Olive did a great job. So bravo to that. And then we also have Clean Slate with Dana Carvey. Um, not quite sure why they picked this one up. Mick Jackson, who had a career once doing stuff like uh, uh, LA Story, LA Story. Um, he kind of bonked it, uh, and he hasn't really had a career since. He's done a couple of things, but uh, you know what was weird watching this all over again uh, is seeing some of the people who show up in this thing. Uh, it, it, it's it's bizarre. I mean, there, there are people who just wait till you see some of the supporting actors in this you'll be like oh my gosh that's where they started Kevin Pollack is in this of all people you realize that Kevin Pollack is in this is one you of used his, to know him yeah he's one of his early things this is in 1994 um, yeah it's it's just it's very strange it's a very strange movie it's a strange comedy vehicle for Dana Carvey uh, making the grade kind of a quasi uh, John Hughes thing with Judd Nelson and uh, Jonah Lee and uh, uh, Gordon Jump shows in this before he passed away. Um, this is a canon film from 1984, trying to sort of do that John Hughes thing in the John Hughes, middle of the John Hughes era, not really succeeding very well. Uh, but like all those canon things, you could tell that it was sort of it, its aspirations were not met by its budget. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then the last two, uh, other than the Chuck Norris thing from the olive, uh, these olive titles, uh, Bandits, which was a well-meaning film with Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton, and Kate Blanchett, directed by Barry Levinson. Uh, this was a well-meaning kind of uh, capery, heisty star vehicle. Didn't quite pan out. This was made in 2001. Um, but it, it's got bits and pieces of it that actually aren't so bad. Written by Harley Payton. Um, features some very, very charming stuff. I just think this movie was too long. I think that was part of the problem. It is over two hours. Uh, Kate Blanchett is amazing. She is absolutely wonderful. Bruce Willis, a little bit oddly miscast. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, miscast, but he makes the best of it. But this is a cool little underground movie that kind of nobody kinda... really... Uh... It got if, overlooked. I thought if, it was kind of nice. If it was, if this was like fifteen minutes shorter, I would like it a whole lot better. 
But it is, but it's not a bad film. It's just an interesting no. kind of weird oddity that fell between the cracks, and it didn't really help anybody's careers. Certainly hurt Barry Levinson's, but still, uh, it's called Bandits, and and Kate Blanchett is just phenomenal. I mean, she's phenomenal in it. She's phenomenally good. And then the last one here um, is Kill Me Again, which our friend Tim actually worked on. Did you know that? What? Yeah, Tim worked on this. This is from that period. Uh, Tim worked for um, uh, ITC. Uh, for for a while back in the uh, kind of late 80s, early 90s, whenever that was, early 90s primarily. This is 1989, uh, so I guess it was late 80s when uh, when he was working for him. But Tim, this was uh, one of the first things I think he worked on out here. Anyway, uh, John Dahl made a number of these kind of low-grade thrillers that were very Hitchcockian, very cool, very moody before he got all the big budgets and started making junk. Isn't that funny how they get handed those big budgets and then their careers just tank? I know. He was doing so well when he was on a shoestring, and this is one of them. Uh, this is a really cool kind of Hitchcockian uh, thriller with a lot of mood and a lot of style. Uh, it stars uh, Michael Madsen and Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally Kilmer. They were married at the time. And uh, it's it's kind of a, this along with uh, Red Rock West, which he made right before it, and The Last Seduction, which he made right after it, are kind of like his master trilogy of cool thrillers. And I still think those are probably his three best films. Oh, yes, yeah, still. By far. Uh, most people prefer The Last Seduction. I actually think, in many ways, this is a better film. Uh, it's got all of those, you know, all those... Everybody in this movie is a renegade. And there's a there's a lot of kind of, you know, I, uh, twisted identity and did he die and didn't he die and uh, all these all this misdirection. And I won't give you anything, but it's a, it's a very, very clever script. And Joanne Wally Kilmer really steals it. She steals it from her husband and she steals it from Michael Madsen, who is just... Who I've seen in so many of these parts that I'm, I'm afraid that he's really as scary in real life as he is in his movies. Uh, he scares me. John Dahl, by the way, just to finish up the thought on him, he uh, he's since given up film pretty much and now just does TV. But, yeah. you know, he does good TV. Ray yeah. Donovan, Justified, House of Cards. It's a good gig. Californication. I the- guarantee I guarantee you he gets paid well over – for those shows and for a director with his pedigree, he gets paid well over $100,000 an episode. I mean, there is there is not one thing in his in his directing filmography from let's say there is no movies. There's a TV movie in 2012. Otherwise, it is all television series. All right, Mark, let's do the uh, shop factory stuff. Judge, you talking about a shout? Does it yeah. do the shop factory stuff? Do it, Rocket. Uh, we have a double feature from uh, the folks at uh, Screen Factory. We have Murders in the Rue Morgue and the Dunwich Horror. Now, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, has been done a number of times. This one is from 1971, and I liked it only because it features Jason Robards and Herbert Lom, who, of course, you know from the Pink Panther films. And uh, I like this movie, actually. It's got a good audio commentary by uh, Steve Haberman, very insightful, and uh, it's got a couple of uh, featurettes. The Dunwich Horror from 1970, not my favorite. Uh, It's got a really cheesy cast. Dean Stockwell's in it, Ed Begley's in it. And it's all about what's going on in this New England town. Uh, I would definitely check this out for Murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, I think it's pretty good. Next, we have uh, The Sicilian. Now, The Sicilian uh, is Michael Cimino, and we all know Michael Cimino. We don't have to go on and tell, everyone's Michael, uh, tell everyone Michael Cimino's CV. He was falling apart by the Sicilian. This was this was this was interesting at the time because I remember when this was announced, and I thought, well, that's an and interesting. It was Mario Pozzo. That's it. It's like okay, Michael Cimino. Some Mario Puzo material with Christopher Lambert. Like you're kind of pulling together pieces that that seem to make sense. How right? bad could it be? How bad could it be? Oh yeah, uh, it it could be bad. 
well, I'm I'm still really forgiving of that movie. It, it's it I it's not good, but there's it's got a certain kind of style to it. But it it's got a a cheesy style that's more like his uh, Year of the Dragon style than anything he did yeah, before but that's that, right? The, yeah, but that's like a journeyman style. Year of the Dragon. Yeah. And it, as you probably know, by the way, Michael Cimino has since become a freak. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, he kind of always was. He's just sort of no, fun. no. Now he's he, he he he's almost gone transgender without actually like. But he claims he's it. not. Yeah, he claims he's not. Yeah, I. You know what? I he he hangs out. So supposedly he hangs out at the coffee bean on Larchmont. I was at the coffee bean on Larchmont, and I wound up talking to this guy who knows Michael Cimino. And he said that sometimes Chimino hangs out at that uh, no. that coffee bean. All right. So no. I, I no longer go to that coffee bean. Anyway, I, I'm forgiving of the uh, of the Sicilian. I think I think it's a misfire, but it's an interesting misfire. I don't think it's. I think it's worth checking out. I, I, I really do. I think there's there is some strange value to it, even though it's you know it's two and a half hours long. It's it, and this is the director's cut. We should point out this is longer than the uh, the um, the original theatrical cut. This is by by like twenty minutes or something. But it's uh, it doesn't make it a better movie. It just makes it a little more cohesive. But it's still interesting. I mean, if you want to see, if you're kind of a Chimino completist and you want to watch, you know, the Deer Hunter and uh, you know all, uh, the deer, the uh... <laughs> what? I'm so I just I have early onset Alzheimer's. The Deer Hunter and <laughs> the Deer Hunter. And Heaven's Gate. That's where I was going. You, you, you completely. Took I forgot me, Heaven's Gate. I was, you I'm took just, me off my game. You started having like an apoplectic you, fit here at the end of the table, and I wasn't sure what you no, were doing. You have no game. Anyway, if you look at the, the the that trajectory from Deer Hunter to Heaven's Gate to the Sicilian, it's it's sad, but it's also interesting. So it, it could be worth it if you're kind of a cinephile and you want to go there. Cherry Falls uh, from the a wonderful year of uh, two thousand is a lame film directed by an interesting guy who never went anywhere. Uh, Jeffrey Wright directed uh, Romper Stomper back in the day. Romper Stomper was the coming out party for uh, Russell Crowe, and that was from 1992. Very intense movie. And in two th- it's a good movie. It is a good movie. Yeah. And then uh, he winds up uh, doing this thing called Cherry Falls with the completely meh cast of Brittany Murphy, Michael Bean, uh, and Jay Moore, of all people. <laughs> and uh, there's some crazy stuff going on in a town called Cherry Falls. And uh, Brittany Murphy plays the uh, daughter of the town sheriff, played by Michael Bean. they got to figure out what's going on. Uh, this is just really just silliness. Although, you know what? Scream Factory, they really put this stuff together, man. They do a good job. There's a new audio commentary from Jeffrey Wright. Now, Jeffrey Wright, this guy has done really nothing. He, it's basically over. For Jeffrey Wright, which is kind of a shame because Romper Stomper was such a such yeah. a good film, and uh, there's a bunch of uh, special features. The script as a BD Rom, you can go check that out. Uh, so good features, better than the movie Cherry Falls. Finally, we do have a uh, a Chuck Norris uh, a, a threesome. Yeah, such but, you're, as it but is. well, you want me to do that? You want to do disturbing? No, behavior? well, I can do this Distur- disturbing behavior. It's almost as bad as Cherry Falls. <laughs> From 1998, disturbing behavior. This is uh, this is just a piece of silliness. This is uh, with James Marsden, Katie Holmes, and Nick Stahl. Now, again, this is 1998. It's a long time ago. Directed by a guy named David Nutter. Now, David Nutter has since gone on to do some good TV stuff, but uh, as for now, with uh, disturbing behavior. It's essentially the Stepford Wives. Essentially, like normally with these teen films, they're like nice kids who go bad. Yeah. But in disturbing behavior, they're bad kids. Who go nice. Go nice. It's like a, they become Stepford teens. What is happening in this town that they become nice? Okay. You'll have to get to the bottom of it. All right. Or actually don't get to the bottom of it. In fact, why don't you just uh, read the wiki page and maybe that'll tell you everything. Uh, anyway, so there you go. 
Uh, Disturbing Behavior, uh, not a good film, but uh, there is an audio commentary with David Nutter, some uh, deleted scenes, and an alternate ending, none of which you will ever see because you should not be seeing this movie. All right, so uh, there are two Chuck Norris periods, for those who don't know this. Uh, Historically, we refer to them as PB and AB, pre-beard and after-beard. Uh, the pre-beard films are actually the good ones. Good Guys Wear Black and the one I'm going to talk about in a second. The PB or the AB uh, era, the after beard era, is when he started doing all this stuff for canon and it just, it just goes completely off the rails. So Chuck Norris's first standalone starring vehicle, not just a movie he acted in, like he, you know, he, he fought Bruce Lee in, in uh, Return, of the Dra- uh, Return of the Dragon. Um, no, his first starring vehicle was Breaker Breaker. I like how you said it's his first starring Vehicle. Thank you. Hardy. Uh, anyway, this was because in nineteen. It's, it's, it's about. It's part of that whole trucker scene, right? We had Convoy and Moving On on television, and BJ and the Bear, and it was just, you know everything was about truckers and good CB radio. And good buddy. And I was into that at the time. I, I was. was like, I had a CB radio. I did too. It was like no, to... you know what? I think a friend of mine. No, you know what? I did not have. And a friend of mine had a CB radio. When I would go to his house. And I would, uh, I would try talk to, to find, truckers. I try to find truckers. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean try to find truckers in the way that you're envisioning. Yeah, I mean, I mean try to find truckers. Well, I was particularly, I was particularly into it at the time because um, one of my very good friends in elementary school, his dad was the editor of uh, of uh, uh, Convoy for Peckinpah. He, he he was the editor, and we were like, "Your dad's." An-. We didn't know what an editor was. He's an editor, cool. All we knew was he was working on Convoy, and we saw the commercials. He's gonna be hey, good, buddy. Ten four, yeah. And we memorized the ten code. I, I, all I remember now is ten four and ten twenty. I don't remember the rest of them. There's like thirty others. Oh yeah. But uh, you know, I memorized all that stuff at the time. It was a lot of fun. So anyway, this tried to sort of merge martial arts with that whole trucking scene in the 1970s. This is from 1977, same year as Star Wars. And, uh, you know, Chuck Norris basically is a trucker trying to find his kidnapped brother, and he must kick butt in order to do it. And that's it. It's just an excuse for him to do an awful lot of, you know, uh, laying into people. It's nice. Jack Nance shows up in this from Eraserhead, which was made exactly the same year. Uh, which is interesting. He was, you know, slowly making his move as, uh, as Jack Nance, by the way, who uh, was also in Twin Peaks, which is coming back next year. Looking forward to that, big time. But anyway, Chuck Norris does some really fun fighting in this. The movie's pretty raw. Uh, it's not a well-made film, but it's a historically significant film. The other two that we have from Shout Factory, that one's from Olive. The two from Shout Factory this week are from his Canon Films era, one of which is horrible, the other of which is not bad. The horrible one is uh, Chuck Norris Braddock, Missing in Action 3. Um, that whole Vietnam thing, be, you know, rescuing the, uh, the MIAs became such Uncommon a cliche. Uncommon Valor, and there's a bunch of them. Oh, it became such a cliche in the 80s. This is from 1988. It's so overdone at this point. Uh, you know, Rambo was kind of part of that scene originally. We, we, Hollywood was trying, to, was trying to refight and win the Vietnam. Yes, exactly. And, uh, of course, Platoon had a lot to Winning the Academy Award in 1986 had a lot to do with that as well. Full Metal Jacket in 1987, a year later. Uh, and obviously all the Vietnam films from the late 70s already, uh, you know, Deer Hunter and Apocalypse. So it was, it was in the zeitgeist. And by 1988, it is so done. And uh, this is directed by Chuck Norris's brother, Aaron Norris, who was 
until the 80s a uh, stunt director and stunt coordinator on all of Chuck's movies and then he got to direct and he's really not a very good director but uh, this is just this is the last one of those missing in action films and boy was it terrible now Invasion USA on the other hand not so bad actually this has moments it's still cheesy it still has that whole canon films Golan Globus vibe to it where you kind of snicker a little bit Uh, but directed by Joseph Zito who did a lot of those kind of uh, a lot of the action things for canon the American Ninja stuff you know he was he was part of their troupe a better director, and uh, it has, this has a whole Cold War kind of Rambo thing, like a second-tier Rambo where he's just this one-man uh, shoot him up who has to, you know, take on the Russians and everybody else. And we're right at the tail end here of... Uh, this is 1985, so we're the last few years of the uh, Soviet Empire, and it's, it's okay. I, you know, I, it's, it's still cheesy, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it, was not, uh, it was not objectionable on the level that a lot of those late-era Chuck Norris movies were. So, um, you know, uh, Russians are always good for bad guys, and, and so much in this one, too. All right, uh, Mark, we have... You know what? Let's do the Criterions. <gasps> seriously, let's do the Criterion. Oh, seriously? Yeah. No, not, no. You mean not jokingly? Not jokingly. We got four fabulous Criterions. No, 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 no. We don't just have... We got... You know, can I say something about the movie that I'm staring at right now? Yeah, go ahead. It's, I, enjo- it's, it's... I enjoyed it when it was when it was its other name. Oh, the, before they corrected the... Yes. The, yeah. See, I think The Bicycle Thief is a better name than Bicycle Thieves. Yeah. Because through the whole movie, you think that the guy who stole the bicycle yeah. is the bicycle thief. It turns out at the end, he's the bicycle thief. The, yes, exactly. The The original... This happens a lot, actually, with, with movie titles, where the Americanization of the title winds up being smarter than the original title. That happened just this last year, actually, with the... Um, it, it's a Chilean film, I believe. Chilean film, uh, the, other mo- the Second Mother. Right. Okay, which is not the original title. The original title is like "Mother will be back in a week and a half" or something like that. It was like this. <laughs> it was this sort of elaborate thing. Mother but, will be back in a week. But and a half. somebody here, or mother, mama will soon come back. It was something not quite so remarkable. But but the the second mother is genius. That's the American title. That's the English language title, and it's genius because that title means something different, like five different times in the movie. Like you go, oh, that's what the title means. No, that's what the, that's what the title means. Like it keeps changing its meaning. It's amazing, and I don't know. What they, I think they should go back and just re- rename the movie because the English language title is so much better than the original Spanish title. And this is, I, I, I would agree with you. The Bicycle Thief is, a, it makes more sense, even though the Bicycle Thieves is the original De Sica title in Italian. Yes. Yes, I agree. Anyway, so this finally is coming out, and obviously this is the uh, the the masterpiece of Italian neorealism, and it's from 1948, and you guys absolutely have to watch this. It's got a great 4K digital restoration. As usual, Criterion knocks it out of the park with a whole bunch of extras, uh, including a little bit of history on Italian neorealism, neorealism, which is great if you're not quite sure what Italian neorealism was. There's a documentary on uh, on uh, Vittorio De Sica, and this is just a great film. It's essentially a, a guy, is uh, he's got a new job, and uh, he's in desperate straits, needs this job, winds up, uh, his, uh, his uh, bicycle gets stolen. So he runs, around the, he runs around the city with his son and tries to find his bicycle, and that's really the whole film. And that is totally what Italian neorealism was, very simple stories 
that are told in a way that is just ground level and realistic. And- but, but also capturing the sensibilities of post-war Italy, which is a nation that had lost its identity. You know, it's about rediscovering the people, not sort of the national narrative. I mean, Italian films, as far back as the silent era, were these opulent period things. They were very much about Italian history. And then Mussolini, like Hitler and, of course, like Stalin, tried to use cinema, built Cinecitta, you know, the studio, wanted to use cinema to sort of um, preach this, this, uh, this vision of what Italian identity was. And after World War II, uh, Italy was a devastated nation. It had to reinvent itself. You had people who were, you know, who were anarchists and people who were Marxists and communists and, and Democrats. And it was, you know, it, it, it was sort of looking for what is Italy going to be in the post-Mussolini era, in the post-colonial era. We have no more colonies. We have no more prestige. Who are we going to be? And I don't know that Italy's ever really re-emerged from that. I think it's still in that phase, you know, some 80 years later, and um, uh, certainly 70 years later. And uh, The Bicycle Thieves is very much about that. I mean, the, the city's in ruins. These are people just trying to live their lives. Who are the people? Independent of all that other stuff, who are the people? And that kid, man, is, is he not just the greatest thing ever? He's, he's a non-actor. <laughs> Seriously. Well, that, but that was that was. Uh, it's not an actor. It's incredible. Well, well, that's the thing. That's what neorealism did. It it's used just non-professional, the real people. non-professional actors. There's stories about about poor people, about uh, you know working class folks. You know, they were all filmed on location. Yeah. You know, and that was part of the aesthetic. And that aesthetic really, as Wade says, that aesthetic really resonated with a country devastated by World War II. And so Bicycle Thieves would be the ultimate expression, I think, of Absolutely. neorealism. Brighter Summer Day is the uh, 1991 film by Edward Yang, the, uh, the late Taiwanese director who I – his sister lives in L.A., by the way. And I know that because I had the privilege of interviewing Edward Yang before he passed uh, at a restaurant, Mark, at a, at a diner. Not half a mile from here. What? Yep, not half a mile from here. Was uh, was, uh, was uh, Jeffrey Tambor there? Because you keep uh, no. dropping his name. Yeah. No, uh, and it was wonderful. Edward Yang, a, a seriously underrated director who, who had his moment, of course, in the 90s. Um, 1991 was really just on the cusp of him kind of breaking through. Uh, when I was at the Cannes Film Festival in 92, he had a film in competition there as well. Uh, which was really extremely well received. A, a delightful man. Anyway, um, a brighter summer day is is a really really sweet film. It is also an incredibly long film, like most of his movies are. You have to understand this is a Taiwanese film, Mandarin and Taiwanese language. It is four hours long. I what? just want to warn you, it is four hours long, but it is magnificent. It takes place in uh, the early 1960s. And uh, it is a, 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 it's a, it's a crime film. It's a very methodical crime film based on a factual crime, based on an actual thing that happened. And I won't give you the the details of it, but it is um, it's an extraordinary. It's it's sort of a, a real life crime story that uh, acts as a prism on all of Taiwanese society in the 1960s. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about Taiwan in the 1960s relative to, you know, are we, are we Taiwan? Are we part of China? All of that is refracted in this in a beautiful way. And it includes um, a two-hour documentary uh, from 2002 that is all about the new Taiwan cinema uh, movement. 
And uh, that includes, you know, uh, Hu Xiaoxian and Simon Liang and other famous directors of the same era and tons of other great stuff. There's a new interview with uh, Chang Chen. Uh, it's really, it's beautiful. And uh, Tony Raines, who's done commentaries before, also does a commentary. It's a beautiful film, a fascinating film. It might be Edward Yang's best film. I haven't made that decision yet. And then also, uh, a poem is, a, uh, Leon Russell uh, stars in A Poem is a Naked Person, which is a less blank film that I've never been particularly fond of from 1974. Uh, you know, less blank made these kind of... Um, Neo documentaries at the time, and uh, it's not really my kind of filmmaking. But uh, you know, Les Blank would do more straight documentaries that I would, of course, appreciate, like uh, Burden of Dreams, which I think is genius, the making of uh, Fitzcarraldo. But uh, you know what? Uh, this was took took him two years to do this. It's all about Leon Russell, singer songwriter. It is a significant film. I think historically more significant than it is necessarily good. But uh, if you like Les Blanc, if you like uh, Leon Russell, uh, this is for you. A lot of extras on here, including uh, a film's 40-year journey, the making of A Poem is a Naked Person, which is a brand-new documentary that's actually, I think, probably more interesting than the movie. So anyway, that's also out there from Criterion on Blu-ray. Uh, Manchurian Candidate, finally, the John Frankenheimer classic from 1962. And we say 1962 because when it was made, the year it was made, very, very important, uh, for reasons I will illuminate in a second. Uh, this, of course, is the classic about a, uh, a Korean uh, war vet who, is, uh, who becomes a, a sleeper assassin. He is brainwashed by the Korean government to assassinate a, a presidential candidate. But, of course, because he's a sleeper, he doesn't know that he's been brainwashed. Nobody knows he's been brainwashed. It's only when he is triggered by his Korean uh, captors does he go off and try to assassinate this presidential candidate. The only person who knows that he's a sleeper, uh, he's a sleeper assassin is Frank Sinatra. Now, Frank Sinatra was instrumental in the making of this film. First of all, um, it was Frank Sinatra who I th- think he was the one who I think bought the rights and kept it out of release after Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, really? I uh, yes, I'm gonna have to look okay. that up somewhere um, because the film was released in 1962, and then when Kennedy was assassinated, people looked at the film and they started to think maybe Lee Harvey Oswald was a Manchurian. Like the term Manchurian candidate became synonymous back then with a sleeper person who was you know triggered to do a horrible act uh, when commanded to, and people thought that. Lee Harvey Oswald might have been the Manchurian candidate. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but I have it. I'm trying to find it here somewhere. I don't know who has this. Um, please hold. You know what? You know who has it? This is, okay, this is what Roger Ebert says. Roger Ebert says that Frank Sinatra purchased the rights to the film and kept it out of release from 1964 until 1988. And the story goes that he was inspired to do so by remorse after Kennedy's death. Um, and then he goes on to say that that wasn't really the reason. But... Uh, and anyway, needless to say, there's the, not only is the film great, but there's a lot of real deal historical uh, significance to the film. And as you can imagine, Criterion does a great job with it. This is a 4K digital restoration. It's an old film. It's a black and white film, so it's not going to look you know pristine, but still, it does look terrific. There's a new interview with uh, 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 Angela Lansbury. Now the story goes that Angela Lansbury plays um, Angela Lansbury plays uh, fr- um, the mother uh-huh. of. Frank, the Frank Sinatra character. Yes. And so it was like, wow, she plays the mother of a of, of Frank Sinatra character. Yeah. She must be like she must be like 30, 30 years older than Frank Sinatra. Yeah, no. She was like three years older. Yeah. Even though that, she played the mom. Yeah, that happens. That happens a lot. With <laughs> actresses who have that sort of older look to them. Right. Shelley Shelley Winters being another one who always got those roles. 
Um, yep. Anyway, so it's a great film. Yeah. Thank you. By the way, you yeah. know what movie I have watched more than any other movie over the last... Oh, you, you know what? I'm sorry. Hang on. It was Raymond's Mother. Yes. The... I knew what you meant, but carry on. You should have corrected me. I, but I, I can't I, I, remember things anymore. I was focusing on mother. Anyway, Lawrence Harvey plays Raymond Shaw. Exactly. He's the he's the he's the uh, the sleeper assassin. Yes. yes. And so Raymond's mother, played by Angela Lansbury, in real life was like three years old. Lawrence Har- Harvey, whose daughter, by the way, whose actual daughter, uh, was the uh, the crazy madcap loony wild child whose life uh, wound up being the subject of the uh, Tony Scott film. Uh, Domino. Domino. That's right. Domino Harvey. Yeah, played by uh, what's her name? Uh, Asia Argento. No, 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 no. Asia uh, Jolie. Uh, d- 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 no, the British the, actress. The, the Keira Knightley. Thank uh, you, Keira Knightley. Thank you. Anyway, uh, man, that's a crazy movie, Domino. All right, so um, we how, got. Some... How could I have forgotten that? Why did I say Frank Sinatra? Because we go a mile a minute on this I show. Know. That's why. Anyway, we're, my we're... fault. It was Lawrence Harvey. Good old Lawrence Harvey. All right, we got three from uh, the Arrow Collection, courtesy of uh, MVD Distributors, Music Video Distributors. Uh, the Arrow Library, it's, this is an interesting one here. This is uh, jointly from Arrow and MGM. This is Pray for Death. Totally forgot this movie even existed. Uh, Pray for Death is a, a kind of... It's, this is really a, um, actually a better movie than it has any business being. It stars Sho Kosugi who, of course, was in all of those American Ninja movies that were uh, part of the, uh, the, the canon library at, in the 80s as well. Mentioned him a little bit earlier. And uh, Shokasugi is a legit martial artist, not a particularly great actor, but a really great martial artist. And uh, none of those canon films necessarily showed off his skills particularly well. This one does. Um, so forget about, you know, Enter the Ninja or any of those other things that he made. This Here he is... Um, essentially a vengeful ninja. And uh, it is a really, this is an incredibly well-done film, really a cool bit of 80s exploitation cinema, and uh, beautifully directed by Gordon Hessler, who would not go on to have much of a great career and probably should have, but this is really very well done. Good script by James Booth, and tons and tons of extras on here. Uh, Very, very sharp uh, stuff from the premiere and... uh, Stuff on Shokosugi, and uh, it, it's good. It's a great transfer, a good-looking Blu-ray, uh, really a nice addition to the, uh, the Arrow Library. Um, then they also have What Have You Done to Solange, one of the worst titles of any movie ever, but an interesting film nonetheless. Uh, what Have You Done to Solange is directed by Massimo Dalamano, who was the cinematographer for a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more, and this is a uh, essentially a giallo film, but it is uh, it is kind of a, cl- a somewhat classier giallo film in some respects. Uh, basically, about a killer who's you know attacking uh, Catholic girls, uh, Catholic schoolgirls, and uh, it, it has really is distinguished by this particular Blu-ray set is distinguished by a lot of really really interesting extras. Uh, a great Ennio Morricone score and um, a, an interview from 2006 with the uh, producer Fulvio Lucisano, which I thought was really, really interesting. Uh, and then lastly is Wake Up and Kill, which is another Italian film. This one uh, directed by Carlo Lizzani. And uh, this is essentially a heist film uh, with, in really, really cool European locations, also with a great Ennio Morricone score. Tons of really, really cool extras. Beautiful 2K restoration on Blu-ray. Uh, certainly a, a great, a, really a kind of a, a cool, kind of a cool Euro heist film from the era. If you like all that sort of stuff, if you like... Uh 
like the Italian job, stuff like that. Uh, this is uh, it, kind of in that same in that same vein. Uh, certainly worthy of it. So uh, check it out. That is Wake Up and Kill, a Blu-ray uh, from Arrow. All of these are Blu-ray DVD combo sets. So all of if you want to make sure, you know, if you want to have a DVD on hand as well, just know that Wake Up and Kill, What Have You Done to Solange, and Pray for Death with Shokasugi also all have the DVD. They're combo sets. Uh, Wade, we have a very interesting um, combination of folks who worked on this uh, film from 1966 uh, after The Fox. Uh, it was directed by uh, Vittorio De Sica, who we just talked about as being the great Italian neorealist director. Written by Neil Simon. Music by Burt Bacharach, starring Peter Sellers. Brilliant. So basically... That's a, that's, a, that's a coolest... That's a cool bunch. That is. That's okay, a cool bunch. Vittorio De Sica... Okay. Yeah. Directed he, he a film he, written by Neil Simon. Yeah, I know. And starring Peter Sellers. Yeah, I know. And the funny part is, it's good. It is good. Come on, it's funny. Peter Sellers. Can't beat that. Script by Neil Simon. How, how bad can it be? And the funny thing is that this really has no, this is this has none of DeSica's uh, neorealist trappings. This is a kind of a straight ahead, kind of a bit of a farce, and uh, it's great. It's about a criminal mastermind. And there's a bunch of gold that's going from Egypt to to Italy, and someone's got to find it and steal it. And it's really kind of crazy and fun. It's called After the Fox. Uh, Victor Mature is in this as well. And uh, yeah, this is a, this is well recommended. A total gem that Kino Lorber has uh, dug up after the Fox, and uh, it's terrific. That's Beautiful. terrific. Are two movies about brains. Two movies about brains. Uh, Donovan's brain. And neither is a zombie film. That's true. Donovan's uh, Brain is, uh, is actually the better of the two that I'm going to talk about now. Donovan's Brain, directed by Felix Feist, um, and he wrote it too, uh, Felix Feist. It's about this doctor, played by Lou Ayers, uh, who uh, he's got this method of keeping uh, brains alive after the body dies. Very exciting. Turns out there's this uh, businessman who was killed in a, uh, it was a plane crash, and so this brain is sort of taking on a life of its own. What's going to happen? It's going to take the control of the body of the scientist. What will happen, Wade? I don't know. This disembodied brain of a dead businessman is in is now controlling a scientist. Uh, go on wow. vacation. Go to the Bahamas. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's a bunch of silliness. But even worse, because it wastes a good cast, is uh, the Black Sleep. The Black Sleep is with uh, Basil Rathbone and Lon Chaney, John Carradine, Bella Lugosi. Of course, uh, Lugosi, Chaney. And uh, Basil Rathbone being three of the just the classic, you know, horror movie actors. Uh, this one is also about a brain surgeon, and uh, he's his wife. Um, uh, Basil Rathbone plays a guy, a surgeon whose wife slips into a coma, and so he wants to try to find a donor for the uh, unorthodox brain transplant that he's got in mind. And uh, it's really silly. It's silly, and it wastes a perfectly good cast. And it, but it does feature Tor Johnson, who's that big hulking guy from Plan 9 from Outer Space. And, uh, yeah, I would definitely pass on the black sleeve. All right, we're going to wrap out with some uh, TV. And uh, first up is uh, something that makes me extremely and exceedingly happy. And uh, if you're a Judd Apatow fan, if you're a fan of anybody who was involved in this, uh, I'll tell you, Freaks and Geeks, the complete series in a Blu-ray collector's edition, is cause for celebration. This is fantastic. Beautiful box set. Uh, from Shout Factory by way of DreamWorks Television, uh, which is the complete Freaks and Geeks on Blu-ray. What a great show this was, and it was just so misunderstood and unappreciated. 
at the time, and I'm so happy that it's out. Uh, this is just absolutely fantastic. Paul Feig and Judd Apatow are both involved in this. Uh, Paul Feig, of course, created it. Judd Apatow was the executive producer. Uh, and it's just, this, this was my childhood. This was my teen, these were my teen years. I was a, I was a Star Trek geek, and uh, everybody that we are, are, are sometimes friends and often nemeses were the D&D uh, freaks. That was it. Freaks and geeks. It I, is true. I it, totally it was, related uh, to this. I related to every single bit of it. The the uh, the D&D folks, the Dungeons and Dragons folks, they were weird, man. Yeah. They the Star weird. Trek people were cooler. They were definitely cooler. Yeah, way cooler. We're totally, we're, yeah, copacetic there. Uh, so this has gobs of extras. Um, by the way, this, this show was only... Um, 18 episodes. It was only episode, 18 episodes, and they have them both in the original broadcast aspect ratio and widescreen, which is a whole new thing because they were shot widescreen, but at the time we didn't have widescreen TVs. And uh, it's just great. The ca- everybody from the cast, they've all gone on to do great things. I mean, it's a, it really, when you think about who was in this cast, it is just, it's amazing. Uh, they've all gone on. And uh, 28 commentaries on here. Uh, it, it's just, it's bloopers outtakes it's just amazing so uh this is this is great um really great multiple commentaries per episode by the way i mean it's just it's fantastic it is this is a dream come true you can watch this between the commentaries and the episodes over and over and over and over again james franco man i mean james franco come on linda cardellini this is where they came from that is true they were baptized in this great show Fantastic. So Freaks and Geeks is out there. And then we also have another Perry Como. Uh, Perry Como. Perry Mason movie collection. Can you imagine a Perry Como movie collection? The Perry Como Mysteries. Uh, Perry Mason movie collection, volume five. I completely did not know that they stretched this on that long. Uh, we got three more discs uh, with double features apiece. So that's six. Stuff like the case of the killer kiss and the case of the wicked wives. It's Perry. It's Perry Mason. It's just. It's. It's all the same. And uh, I'd see. I'd recommend this only if you just cannot get enough of Raymond Burr or the character. But otherwise, this stuff is really just kind of put it on in the background and don't pay too much attention to it. Yes. Oh, was I supposed to say something? <laughs> it's your turn. Oh, my turn. Speaking yes. of turn, we have on DVD the second season of Turn. From uh, AMC, this is a uh, fairly well-mounted uh, series about uh, the Revolutionary War. He kind of tries to make the Revolutionary War look like the Cold War, but whatever. Ah, but you, well, because here's the thing: is that you know people don't realize that back then Benedict Arnold, who now of course is synonymous with uh, with treason and whatnot, he was Washington's uh, you know kind of his closest ally, and so that's kind of where this uh, this show takes off takes his jumping off point from. And uh, it's good. I think the show is totally fine. The uh, DVD, not the Blu-ray, uh, includes some deleted and extended scenes. And uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, we have uh, CPO Sharky, the best of season two. Now, I don't know why they just didn't come up with CPO Sharky season two. Got to be six episodes of the best of season two. Uh, this show is something your grandfather might like. I just, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, Don Rickles is the best, but it just doesn't. And then finally, me, Mark, the world's biggest mystery science theater fan, cannot uh, get, uh, cannot just wrap his head around uh, the uh, the set that is uh, thirty five. Thirty five, I know. Thirty five of these. I have to say, I have a lot of these, and I've started, uh, I've started giving them away. Yeah. I don't want thirty five of these. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, each one's two hours. They have like four movies and a bunch yeah. of. I don't need all that. I know. 
This one has Teenage Caveman, Being from Another Planet, 12 to the Moon, uh, Death Stalker, and the Warriors from Hell. Um, you know, I just think uh, after 35, if you have all 34 previous, you need to get a life. And I'm a huge fan, by the way. I hear you. All right. Well, with that, we are done. We will see you guys next week. 